Welcome to the Daniel Warman Show. It is yours truly coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call and all time zones in between. This morning we are joined by Steve Bailey of Non-League America. And uh, he is our guest today. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. I'm happy to be here. So, Steve, give us give us a, a little bit of background about, you know, non-league America. You you guys have been doing some really cool work over the last few years. Just kind of give us the origin story of non-league America. Sure. Um, you know, non-league America, really tracing it back to its origins, it started when I found myself kind of, frankly, unemployed in 2008, at the you know peak of the recession and depths of the recession, I think is probably a better way to describe it. And I had too much time on my hands, and I was watching a lot of Fox Soccer Channel, if you remember when that was going strong. And um, I started watching watching like the USL Game of the Week, things like that, and seeing you know like Wilmington Hammerheads on TV, and seeing the little atmosphere they had going on, you know, down there in North Carolina and um, early round FA Cup games. And I saw an FA Cup game on TV with Torquay hosting at their tiny little ground in England. And I was like, this is, and they were playing a big team and I don't even remember who it was to be honest with you, but it was some name brand recognizable premier league or championship team. And they were, and I was like, how are they playing at this tiny little, little stadium? What's going on here? And so it led me down kind of a Wikipedia K-hole, and I um, just kept pursuing that. And that's how I discovered the U.S. Open Cup. And um, I was shocked to find out that we had an all-access tournament like the U.S. Open Cup available going on here in our country. And so I thought, wow, how can I get involved with that? And so I started volunteering, um, writing articles for the cup.us for josh and you know for games that i wasn't even attending just he was looking for somebody to do recaps and i would call the coaches and i was primarily doing like qualifying out of the maryland major soccer league and so i'd email and call coaches for scores and just basic box scores and try and piece together narratives out of like little tidbits of information um i was kind of building my career back up at the time. And I, I went to sell cars. So for the next few years, I was making okay money, but I had, if you know anything about the car lot life, you can get money, but you'd have no time. You're spending like inordinate amounts of time on the lot. So I didn't have any, I could never get out of there early enough on the weekend to go to a lot of games. So I had this like pent up passion for trying to get to some games and I started out by attending MLS, and but became a little disillusioned with the experience and was looking for something more. And so I was, having already been exposed to the Open Cup, I was thinking, who are these random small teams that pop up in the Open Cup and what are the home leagues where they play on a regular basis? Nobody's talking about that at all. You know, maybe a little bit about the Open Cup and nothing about the leagues themselves. 
So I did some Googling and, and talking to some people and found out about the Bay State Soccer League. I was living in Massachusetts at the time. And I just started going out and attending games of the Bay State Soccer League and the um, Massachusetts Soccer League. Um, and that was going, that's kind of fallen off now. But that, there were two leagues that were going on pretty strong at that time Bay State Soccer League on Saturdays and the um, Massachusetts State Soccer League on Sundays. And I would just go out and videotape the games and take footage and just kind of, you know, get a feel for the culture of the game and who these teams were and the communities that they represented. And I thought it was fascinating that that there were so many clubs that represented, you know, the tapestry of America and all these ethnicities, um, ethnic tie-ins to the clubs and, and a real um, sense of like social support that it appeared like um, the clubs were providing for the players, clubs like Kendall Wanderers out of, uh, you know, the Bay State Soccer League, really strong ties with the local Irish community, teams like um, there was West Africans United was playing in, in the Massachusetts State Soccer League at the time. And and just really interesting to see these kind of, mat on the local level, these international matchups taking place. Greenbrier was another Irish team. And so a me real memorable match was West Africans versus Greenbrier on like a Sunday out in, I think it was Tewksbury or Tingsboro or somewhere up there around Lowell and uh, Northern Massachusetts. And I just got addicted to going to games and I went to like 40 games and I started blogging about it. But I started out blogging kind of tongue in cheek copying some of the, the tone of some of the English groundhopper type of blogs. But I realized that there was a gap in a serious approach to the game. And the more I learned about MLS, the more disillusioned I became, you know, with it as a soccer experience. And I was looking for ways to find the pockets of passion and the bigger crowds in the lower divisions. And that's what really my attendance of all these games was about. It was about searching for the lower league culture. And I found it in some pockets in Massachusetts, but it became apparent to me on the internet that it was much stronger in other places um, other around the country. So eventually I took this, expanded the scope of it, rebranded it from its kind of esoteric name of the original blog, which was called Deep in the Pyramid, and changed, I had this idea to change it to non-league America and to, to come back out a little more serious, bring it over to Twitter, really start connecting with clubs in a meaningful way and start aggregating all the loose information that was out there. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people who've been involved with soccer a lot longer than me. I don't make any claim to be uh, a tactical expert or, or anything like that. Um, I really try to stay away from the lanes that are not my area of expertise. I know my lane, my lane is, is content and culture, and that's the lens that Non-League America provides. So give us a little bit of background on where this passion for the game came from. Because to do the, the kind of things that you've done, the work you've put in, the coverage that you've provided, the content you've created, I mean, everything that we're kind of talking about here, I, I want to learn, and I, and I think our audience would be curious as well, where did this love affair with football, with, with soccer, begin for you? And, and why why is it so strong that it's com kind of compelled you to kind of go down this road, this in, in this journey with Non-League America? I mean, that's a really interesting question, Daniel. I think it's a couple of factors all coming together. Um, you know, I played as a kid. I was not a great player. I played more on, like, rec town teams. I never was on, a part of the select. Maple was the league at the time, like, the that the really good players played in, the big play-to-play -play league in Massachusetts. I was never, never even got a sniff of that, you know. But I, I was a decent town team player. I played for my, in the fall, I played for my, my local town, Sterling, Sterling soccer. And, and in the spring we had a kind of regional team mountain club 
which was like the uh, the regional school district, five towns combined in North Central Massachusetts, Holden, Paxton, Princeton, Rutland, Sterling. And so, um, you know, I, I did that up to about U14. And I watched, you know, the, the World Cup in the U.S. in 94. It hit me at that perfect time in my adolescence while I was playing soccer. Um, I was born in 81, so that would, would have made me 13 in the summer of 94, playing U14s. All those, all those factors came together at the same time. So I stayed in touch with the game. I never totally abandoned the game, but it was always on the periphery for a number of years through the late 90s. I realized that I had a, some tremendous fitness. I used to play on the wing and just outrun everybody, but I just didn't have the ball skills. So when it came to like time to concentrate seriously on sports, I became a cross country runner um, and was, you know, not a world beater, but fairly successful, much more successful at running than I was at playing soccer. But um, so I got away from the game in a formal sense for, for a number of years in the early 2000s. But so that, that was my exposure to the game. Then for the, for the cultural angle, I always was a passionate hip hop fan and in the nineties, especially like independent Southern hip hop. So I had a massive CD collection and I was really interested in geography and finding out different rappers from different small towns and, and analyzing the different sounds that would come out of different regions and subregions, different cities, and like mapping what the, the rap culture was like around America. So I would read a lot of mag independent rap magazines back in the day, and I won't go too deep in that because this is a soccer podcast, not a hip hop podcast. But, but that I've always been curious, you know, I've always been um, somebody who's interested in taking a deep dive into all the information that's available. By trade, I'm a brand strategist, so I do a lot of research. I w worked in ad agencies. Um, I work in an agency right now. I'm director of strategy at a agency called Creata in uh, suburban Chicago. I've worked in Atlanta and, you know, um, multicultural advertising, uh, youth-focused advertising, and, you know, general market advertising across a number of different industries, travel, retail. So kind of bringing all those things together. And then the last piece that uh, laid the foundation for that is my dad is a big baseball fan. And he was always big Red Sox fan, being from Massachusetts. So long before the Red Sox were the world beaters that they are nowadays, you know, they used to be um, something that was a, a little closer to the hearts just of New Englanders. And my dad was always interested in the farm system and the prospects that were coming up. So we used to schedule vacations and trips around going to visit different levels of the Red Sox farm system. I remember going to Florida on vacation and seeing the Winter Haven Red Sox at the time. And um, I, we used to take a, my dad took me on a trip when I was about 12 years old to see all the various levels of who were uh, affiliated with the Red Sox at that time. And we went through upstate New York and we saw um, the New Britain Red Sox play the Albany Colony Yankees. And at that time, actually, right before he, he injured his arm, I saw what I believe was the last game that Brian Taylor, who was the number one overall baseball draft pick in like 1990 or 91 for the Yankees before he got in a, a fight with his brother and like threw, blew out his arm and ruined his career. But I saw him pitch uh, against New, the New Britain Red Sox. And then I saw the Paw Sox go up and play in Syracuse against the Syracuse Chiefs, Toronto Blue Jays affiliate. We worked into a stop at the National Soccer Hall of Fame which at the time was in Oneonta, New York, right? And so we went to the Soccer Hall of Fame, went to Cooperstown, and um, I think the last one we saw the Utica Blue Sox, who were like a single-A affiliate of the Red Sox. So my dad was always into that grassroots baseball. And so that, that gave me an appreciation for, you know, lo the lower leagues and the kind of unique experience of attending small-time sporting events. So all of that just kind of came together and laid the groundwork before... Um, I got non-league America off the ground, but you can see how each of those elements uh, kind of has come to fruition in the way that I've laid out the approach to non-league America. Completely. And um, 
you know, I grew up in the South and, and, uh, so in the South that's, you know, by and large Braves country, um, in, in, especially, you know, uh, growing up, they were on, on TBS and, you know, they, they had the nickname America's team because everybody could watch all of their games and they grew this massive national fan base. But in the South, that was always kind of the, the only team, uh, that was, you know, within driving distance. And, and so I grew up a Braves fan, but I also grew up a Red Sox fan, um, for, for a couple of reasons. It prob- uh, and part of that was, uh, First, in in kind of going to Braves games and kind of reading about their history, I, I realized in, in in reading the Braves history that their origin story um, as the Braves began in Boston. Yeah. And uh, and so um, having having grown up in the South um, and going to Braves games and kind of getting that history, there was kind of this connection that happened with Boston. And I and I was like, well, you know, I'm. I'm going to, and back then, you know, you didn't have any kind of interleague play. So the only time right. AL and, and NL teams were meeting was, was in the world series. So I was like, you know, I, I'm going to make the Red Sox, my American league team. So, so that, that, that was one part. Another part was, is that, um, in 1986, the Red, <laughs> the, the Red Sox lost in the world series to the Mets. Yeah. I remember do I you, remember I was five. Yeah. Do you but I have a very clear remember, very clear memory? My dad went to um, one of the games. I don't remember which game it was, but he went to one of the games at Fenway Park in the World Series, and he brought me home this pennant which had like the um, fake signatures, not real signatures, but like pre-printed, pre-printed style of like little signatures all over the pennant of the '86 Red Sox team. And I, I remember I had that hanging up on my wall for years and years i don't know what happened to it but i had it for like 20 years so all the spike owen and and all those right right so i'm going to ask you a quick trivia question um and and that trivia question is is do you do you remember who the defensive replacement at first base was for that world series team who did not enter the game and instead, Bill Buckner stayed in the game and made the mistake. Do you know who that, that backup defensive first baseman was? Oh, man, I don't know. Maybe Dave Henderson? or I, I, I don't know. I don't know. His name was Dave Stapleton. Dave Stapleton. Dave, what did I say? Dave Henderson? Yes. Dave Stapleton. Yeah, close. Yeah, yeah. I so, I didn't have that. I didn't have Stapleton on my lips, but I, I was circling around it. Yeah. So Dave Stapleton is from the same area where I am from in Alabama, and when I was a kid, this was um, after I, you know, kind of adopted them as my um, American League team. I also happened to. Uh, play on a couple uh, little league teams that were the Red Sox. So that kind of all tied in as well as is kind of influence into why I became a Red Sox fan. Yep. Dave Stapleton came and, 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 and shortly after that world series um, retired. And uh, I don't remember exactly what year, but, but I was still playing baseball when he retired. And so he, came to our park and was actually, uh, was one of my coaches one year and, and, and helped out with our team. And, and we didn't know who he was. I mean, we had no, like as a kids, like, I mean, we didn't rec, we didn't put two and two together. It wasn't until later that we figured it out because he, he didn't walk around with that kind of, you know, like, Hey, I'm a former major league baseball player. It was, he didn't have an attitude. He was just real down to earth, really good guy, you know, really good, baseball guy and um so so that that was a, a a second connection and my last connection to the red Sox, um as we have have successfully detoured off of uh, the, the global game but but no this is this is great so my, my last connection was that my growing up my aunt and uncle um lived outside of baltimore maryland and um there in baltimore is one of the coolest uh baseball museums you'll ever find and it is the 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 childhood home of Babe Ruth. Oh, 
Right. And it's right. it's not far from Camden Yards. And uh, and so I I grew up going to the old Oriole Park and got to watch, you know, Cal Ripken, Cal Ripken Sr. manage and his brother Billy play second. Yeah. And those were that, that was really cool. And in 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 that museum, I was reading about Babe Ruth's you know, story, his history and his career. And, uh, and, and obviously knew he started with the Red Sox and then went to the Yankees. And he really, he started with the Orioles, right? And they were kind of like an independent minor league team. Right, right. Right. But, uh, but after he left the Yankees, he finished his career. He played one year back in Boston, but with the Braves. Yep. Yeah. And, and so that really washed up at that point. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah. that, but that, but I, I knew that his story, um, is, was really kind of the final piece that kind of glued together this Braves and Red Sox, um, fandom for me that, uh, lasts to this day. So my, every year when people ask you know, who you want to see in the world series, I always say the Braves and the Red Sox, cause then I never lose. So, yeah. um, but uh, anyway, back to back to soccer. Now that we have yeah. uh, we've talked about uh, America's pastime, let's talk about America's future, and uh, and that is soccer, which is the best game in the world, in my opinion. I, I absolutely sure. love the game, and and your work with non league America to me is is compelling. It is fascinating. It is necessary to tell these stories that you've been telling. Give us a little bit of some of the recent projects that you've been working on in terms of the documentaries and the clubs and, and, and some of their stories that you, you found very interesting and that you've felt compelled enough that you would, you know, create these uh, documentary movies uh, telling their story. Yeah. So um, there's a couple that, I mean, they're all, uh, they're all like have a little piece of my heart in them, but, I think that uh, the Providence City documentary was our biggest project to date. It's our longest piece. It comes out just over 20 minutes. Um, and the reason being, we spent a lot of time with them. You know, Jamisa Johnson, who, who directs, she was with them, pretty much embedded with them for almost two months. And Providence City has made tremendous waves worldwide really on Twitter with their, you know, design sense, their social media savvy, but people hadn't really seen them play. They knew the image and they loved the image, but they didn't really know who these guys were and what the club actually was and what it was about. So as they got the opportunity to have some friendlies last year against some slightly higher profile NPSL teams. You know, Jamisa embedded with Providence City and traveled around and, and saw them play in Kingston, New York against Kingston Stockade and, you know, Dennis Crowley and all the stuff that he's doing. Um, and saw them play against Hartford City, another ambitious NPSL team. And they had some decent results. They they tied Hartford 1-1 and they lost to Stockade 2-1, but um, you know made a good showing of themselves, showed that they can absolutely compete at that level. And um, we got some of their home league action as well. We got their, their big match, their rival in the D2 of the Bay State Soccer League at the time is Brockton FC. And Brockton is now running teams um, in both the first division of the Bay State Soccer League and UPSL. So they're another ambitious club coming out of Massachusetts. And through my time researching, you know, in the origin story that we went over earlier, I've, you know, found out that what a lot of people already know, but, you know, it was news to me at the time that, you know, the strongest attendance in terms of so lower division amateur soccer in New England is really centered around the Portuguese leagues and centered around Rhode Island and, and southeastern Massachusetts, New Bedford, Fall River, and, and down into Providence. So I had been to a game uh, and hosted a little tailgate 
back in December of 2012 that was a U.S. Open Cup qualifying match. It was like the third round of the Massachusetts Amateur. Um, it was the Massachusetts Amateur State Final. You know, they had a lot of layers of the tournament before it was centrally organized by the Federation. It used to be just kind of organized independently at the state level and then fed out into the regions, region one in this case. So they had a, their, the ancestor club of Providence city was called East Providence sports. And they had a, a match that went all the way to penalties with uh, mass premier soccer, GPS, Massachusetts, which is now GPS omens. Who's also had, you know, a few appearances in the early rounds of the open cup over the last course of the last, you know, five or six years. And that was an amazing game. We have a, a little crowd out there, probably like 30 people out there for that one. But I saw the passion that those guys played with. So I've been tracking them. And when they emerged as Providence City, I was able to make that connection between East Providence Sports and Providence City being kind of a Phoenix club of that league when the Lusa League in, in that area, which was the whole league of Portuguese teams, basically disappeared. And similar, the Nalasa League out of Brockton, um, which had like really served the Cape Verdean community, which is where uh, Brockton United kind of emerged from that that league, which has also kind of gone. I'm not sure if it's still in existence, but it, it's not as if it is. It's not as strong as it was, you know, five ten years ago. So, one consequence of the further expansion of the UPSL has been centralizing a lot of these teams that were loosely held together or not held together at all in their kind of various independent leagues and giving them a centralized structure. And I'm hoping that the fan base that these clubs had in the past can, I'm not talking the ancient past. I'm not talking soccer history, you know, back in the day, I'm really talking about just 10 years ago when they would have consistent few hundred people out there, I think just a lot of people lost touch as, as there was that downswing period around 2012, 13. But I think um, as these clubs are rising back up and finding their place in the new constantly evolving system, um, I hesitate to call it a system because it's such a cluster, but an assemblage of leagues that they will, that the fans will come back, the clubs will kind of remake that connection with their communities and we'll start to see attendances pick up in the Northeast because frankly, the rest of the country in terms of fan attendance is a lot farther ahead of new England at, at this time, the quality of play is way higher than the, the culture experience in new England right now. But so that's why that's another reason, you know, why I wanted to expand beyond just a new England focus was be able to tap into all those communities that have that broad cultural support. And that's how I found some of the other subjects of our documentaries, like Superdelegates, the team that serves the West African community of suburban Maryland, Washington, D.C. area, DMV, and uh, their mission to give players a chance to use their experience in the lower leagues to maybe get a toehold in Europe and get some tryouts with lower division teams in like Denmark and Sweden and stuff like that. So that's what that story was all about. That's why we labeled um, the Superdelegates documentary, The Launchpad. So that's another story that I have a lot of passion for. And then the Vietnamese tournament down in Houston and connecting with Jimmy Bo down there and seeing how, um, you know, soccer and community are so intricately linked within the Vietnamese soccer community. And that was a beautiful story. And being able to link up with Alfonso Bui and, and his um, production skills and directing skills was a great asset on that project. And um, we were able to get a lot of exposure and that one got right up in Fox Sports in Vietnam and um, you know, it's a little bit of worldwide exposure on that. So really optimistic about the future of the platform and what we can do, and we're going to continue to shine a light on overlooked and disenfranchised communities around the country and give them their opportunity to tell their own story in their own words. You know, I'm never talking on camera. Um, you know, our director is never talking on camera. It's just really the stories of the people and giving them a platform 
to tell it in their own words. I think that is uh, really cool the way that you approach uh, these clubs and and kind of share their story. You know, you're 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 almost uh, like a curator at a museum, and uh, you, you're you're bringing together their stories and then packaging them and and kind of telling them in a compelling way. Um, what as you as you look across the American soccer ecosystem. There, there are a lot of uh, chaos, uh, chaotic um, structural issues, and uh, that means uh, obviously a lot more stories for you in terms of the opportunities to find um, non-league type of you know documentary subjects. Are there are there some stories that you're looking at now uh, to produce, um, you know, coming up here for the rest of 2019? Yeah, I have a, a few. Um, I have a few subjects in mind, a um, couple of ideas. I really can't share um, them yet, but if you follow uh, at NonLeagueUSA on Twitter. You know, you'll be the first to hear about all our announcements as they come up. So if you don't have a Twitter account, go ahead, get yourself a Twitter account. If you do have a Twitter account, follow, go ahead, follow at non-league USA. Um, we're, we have an ambitious schedule for the rest of uh, 2019 and some big plans for 2020. One of the, the big projects that I can tell you about that's coming up, this is an ongoing project. This is our most ambitious project to date. Um, in a our first planned departure from the mini documentary format, although it, it can be said that the Providence City at 20 minutes kind of stretches the the boundaries of the definition of mini doc, but in general we try to keep them a lot shorter than that, more around you know five to ten minutes. But this is going to be a full length documentary that we're working on called Black College Football, and this is going to be a documentary about the state of soccer at America's HBCUs and how, what steps are being taken to grow the game within the culture of HBCUs and uh, what opportunities there are to further and deeper embed soccer within the existing strong cultures of HBCUs. I mean, you're down there in Alabama, right? We shot last fall at uh, Alabama State, and in the annual game between Alabama State and Alabama A&M women, which is not part of the official Magic City Classic festivities. Let me back up for a second. For those that are not familiar with the world of HBCUs, HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities, schools that people might have heard of like um, Morehouse and Howard, you know, Spelman on the women's college side, all in Atlanta. Um, obviously, Howard's up in Washington, D.C., but all around the country, but, but really concentrated in the South um, are HBCUs, historically black colleges founded right after the Civil War during Reconstruction, give black people equal opportunity to education. So, you know, and everybody knows about the HBCU bands that really drive the culture of HBCUs and, and the sports around them, especially college football. But, um, you know, I did some research and saw that the main conferences that people are familiar with that have these schools, most of them don't sponsor soccer. Um, schools like the conferences like the MEAC and the SWAC with schools like Grambling and Southern and, um, you know, Jackson State and the bigger HBCUs, most of them don't, none of them sponsor men's soccer at any of the four Division One or Division Two scholarship granting levels at the conference level. But there are individual schools on the men's side that do compete. They either compete in other predominantly white conferences, like the, in the case of Howard, and Howard's, you know, history has been chronicled. They had, they won the national championship in 71 and 73 and got one of those titles really wrongly vacated just because of racism. But the other one, they, they won outright and kept 
but they really won two on the field. Uh, but um, and that that story's been told. Spike Lee put out a documentary about it. It's fascinating. But we really want to find out like now what is the state now, and so beyond the MIAC and the SWAC and the SIAC and the CIAA are the smaller private colleges that mostly exist in the NAIA that do play men's soccer. And let me back up and say that on the women's side, the SWAC sponsors Division I women's soccer. None of the other three conferences that I mentioned do, but the SWAC does. So in the, the large schools in the Deep South, they have women's soccer. And so we wanted to kind of compare and contrast what that experience was like between the that Magic City Classic football experience with 75,000 people down there in Birmingham. Amazing event, really the highlight. I went out there a couple of years ago. Um, it's one of the highlights of my life. Had a great time. And then um, what this kind of lonely on-campus game in the rain that was not part of the festivities. And, and we want to explore why not right? There's opportunity to further embed. It's, I'm not saying that it's going to be the marquee event that the Magic City Classic football game is. In, I don't expect it to be. But what if just a, just a small change, like instead of playing that Thursday night game on a lonely field, why not move that Thursday night game to Birmingham because people are coming into the Magic to, to Birmingham all week during the Magic City Classic, coming in with their RVs, parking, and it's all about school pride. It's less about the sport, especially at HBCUs. Like it's about the pageantry and the and the communal bonding and stuff like that. So why not find a way for the women's soccer game to be in Birmingham on that same Thursday night and kind of kick off the weekend? Right. So if they did it at like the UAB soccer stadium or something like that, that was accessible, put it in the program for the, the week event schedule, you know, they could get a couple thousand people out there and that would be beautiful. And these girls would get a chance to to play in front of some bigger crowds and be, be part of the, the atmosphere of the event. So that's the kind of things that we're looking to uncover those opportunities in this documentary by exploring um, all these schools. And then, like I said, on the men's side, a lot of them trickle down into much smaller schools. They're really concentrated down in like Texas and uh, around that area. So you have like um, schools like Paul Quinn College, which dropped football a couple years ago and and replaced their uh, football field with a sustainable vegetable garden. And that's part of this whole um, you know neighborhood gardening initiative and stuff like that. And so they they really got away from sports. But as they started to after a few years, they started to dip their toes back into sports. And the first thing they did was they brought on a, a men's and women's soccer team. So we want to explore that and find out what that's all about. Um, we, we, did, we did shoot some footage with Talladega College down in Alabama um, and, you know, found out a little bit about what they're doing. They got a lot of players from St. Lucia recruiting heavily in the Caribbean. So, you know, that's an opportunity for them to tell their story. They're going to be part of it. And then we want to reach out to, like I said, all those other schools in Texas, Texas College, um, Wiley. Wiley's been pretty successful. Um, you know, other schools that, again, aren't as much known for sports, but have stellar academic reputations like Fisk in Nashville, one of the most elite academic HBCUs, really known for producing um, a lot of medical professionals, it's right, kind of there in Nashville, Fisk and the Meharry Medical College are both right there, but but Fisk has a soccer team. So again, not widely publicized, but they compete. So we want to go out there and visit them and see what they're all about. So the goal is to visit every single HBCU that plays men's or women's soccer in the United States. It's like 24 schools and uh, make that into a feature length documentary. In in doing some research on that documentary and, and finding those 24 schools that have, you know, a men and or women's uh, program, have, what has the preliminary feedback been in terms of what the schools think about soccer? Have you gotten any kind of feedback about how they view it? how the communities around the, the university and the colleges feel about soccer? So that is something that we're in the process of finding out. It's really 
it's a it's a process of discovery. I think, are you asking specifically about like the athletic department's various visions, or are you asking about like the relationship with the students on campus and the general soccer culture? Probably a little bit of both. I mean, first I would be curious, and, and obviously we'll be watching with the the documentary coming out. But I, I was so just for just to level set on time frame, we're going to be shooting shooting a little bit with the you know spring soccer seasons and practices that are going on now, but heavily shooting in the fall of 2019. Most of the shooting is going to be done through the main fall soccer season 2019. So this this production is not going to be out till sometime in 2020, just to, to set expectations on this. So, so that I don't hold my breath and die before 2020. Can you give yeah. me any preliminary feedback that you might have gotten in terms of uh, on the 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 leadership, this this the the academic, the, I mean, excuse me, the athletic department leadership. But if if you had any kind of comments or, or conversations with any of them, where kind of they view the sport, are they interested in it? Is it something they yeah, tolerate? I mean, are they excited about well, I it? I think I think that um, a lot of the smaller schools are seeing soccer as an opportunity. It's, that's why it's been more popular in the smaller schools so far. You know, the larger schools have just a lot more politics in their sports programs in terms of being, you know, Title IX and, and gender equity and football scholarships and being able to add things. And so I think when you look at the schools that either don't have football at all or the schools that have smaller, low-profile football teams where it doesn't drive the school culture um, – that's where you're seeing the most growth. Uh, a school that recently popped up just and played their first year uh, two years ago, I think they're heading into their third year in 2019, is Shaw in North Carolina. You know, that's a, a D2 school. They don't, in, in most sports, they're in the uh, CIAA, but, you know, for soccer, the CIAA doesn't, like I said, uh, officially sponsor soccer as a conference. So they play in a predominant with predominantly white schools. There's not a whole HBCU conference, but they're out here and they're, you know, making progress and we want to document that. The other thing that we were really interested in is, and this is, can be a sensitive subject, but I think it's a really important thing to touch on is if HBCU's primary mission is educating young African-American students, we want to see what, the makeup of one, the rosters are in terms of the, the players' backgrounds. Are they fulfilling that mission of serving the population that they're set out to serve? Um, and two, like, who are the coaches? What's their backgrounds? And what's the relationship between the coaches' backgrounds and, and the rosters of the schools? This is a really sensitive part of it, but I think it's something that, that we got to touch on. So, like, because if you look at and take this full circle to our the start of our conversation about baseball, if you look at the trend in African-American participation in baseball over the course of the last 50 years, you know, it's drastically dropped. But HBCUs still cling to um, having base, Division I baseball programs. And it's gotten to the point where a lot of these schools – Baseball teams are like all white, white coaches and all white players. So does that serve the mission of the university? It may because, you know, HBCUs have always been open to everybody. So if you want to go and get a quality education and compete at the highest level, like it's an opportunity for you to go there. But, you know, it like it should be about mixing, I think, or, or serving the campus overall. And if not, you know, are, are these all white teams you know, sufficiently integrated socially with the rest of the campus? And, you know, what's, what's that dynamic like? So we're exploring all that. And we're going to be exploring that from the soccer perspective too. conducting a lot of interviews away from the soccer field with students and, and just doing a lot of like primary qualitative research and talking with students about soccer. And so we're going to get that background, um, you know, worked into the documentary find out about 
um, students' relationship to the game and beyond, you know, the players on the field and how the players think that, you know, they could lend a hand in, in helping to, to promote their team and how they could, you know, get it deeper embedded in the culture. I think that when you look at um, teams like even MLS teams like Atlanta United, who really have a super diverse fan base, a lot of African-American involvement, you know, how can, how can that, you know, vein be tapped um, specifically within the context of HBCUs? I think it's, it's not a big gap. I think it's a, my hypothesis going in and, and with people we've been talking to, um, it's, there's a lot more interest, I think, in the sport than there is overall, than there is involvement specifically with the school's teams. So that, that link between that magic that like Atlanta United's tapped into and um, the schools themselves needs to be bridged. And hopefully that this documentary can be a vehicle to like help bridge that gap and get, get these stories out in the public because it's pretty obvious that most people don't know. They might even know about these schools, but they don't know that they have soccer teams. I don't think a lot of people know that Paul Quinn College has a soccer team. That That uh, is fascinating. I, a good friend of mine um, went to Howard and played soccer at Howard, and, um, and, and he and I talk frequently, and I think he'll be pretty fasc- uh, interested and in, fascinated with with your stories and the documentaries and the, the, the coverage that you have. Um, and I have to say, I have to interject that I'm not the biggest fan of college soccer overall. I don't like it's bastardized rules of this unlimited substitutions and it's stupid clock that ends with a horn and, and all this stuff. So in general, I try to stay away from it, but you know, there's always exceptions to the rule. And I thought that this is just such an important topic that it's, I gotta, you know, kind of overlook some of the, the barriers that I set for myself in terms of like parameters of, of what topics I'm willing to look at. Well, I'm glad that you are, and and one of the reasons why I'm glad you are is, I you know I I think that the the U.S. soccer system for so long has created barriers to entry, and those barriers to entry often are socio economic barriers to entry, but they they've also caused some issues in terms of race, and if you look at you know, coaching and coaching licenses, uh, staffing and personnel uh, within U.S. soccer. You look at the player pools, etc. You you definitely see a disproportionate amount of, um, uh, you know, white people, Anglo. Uh, yeah, uh, light, you say white, it's okay. We can you know, talk freely. Uh, yeah. People that that are you know um, in the program. Uh, in, in whatever role that they may be. And yet we have this massive growing population of Latinos and, yep. um, and, and, and yet we have uh, this kind of underbelly um, that this, this collection of other um, ethnicities and, 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 and you're touching on this with, with African-Americans uh, as well that, that are, you know, playing the game, loving the game and and needing a chance, needing an opportunity. And and so I, I'm I'm really looking forward to the the coverage, the documentary, and can't wait for it to come out in twenty twenty. Um I, I think there's gonna be some really, really cool and interesting stories that, that Daniel, are really really yeah. good to hear. Daniel, the bottom line is this there's just so much more soccer out there that people don't know about. And that's why Non-League America exists, because we just want to find out about the soccer and bring the soccer to the people. You know, it, it doesn't, um, without, you know, delving off into all my beefs with MLS and closed systems and ProRail and all that, like, just fundamentally, there's a lot more than MLS. There's a lot more than USL. And there's, a, a, frankly, there's a lot more than NPSL, UPSL out there. There's so much, and there's just not enough. There's hardly any outlets to bring all that together in one place and 
for people to get those stories. And, and we want to be that source. We want to tell those stories. And that's our mission. And we're not going to stop until the stories are told. Well, Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Um, it, I, keep up the great work. You guys are doing incredible work. And the stories you're putting out are are great. And, uh, you know, like I said, if you um, keep telling the stories, keep sharing those stories, I know there will be um, those of those of us like m- myself and, and many, many others that will be waiting to and, and anxiously waiting to see the culmination of that massive project um, that you're you're planning to shoot and go into production on um, in the fall. So, Steve, thanks for joining the show. We look forward to having you back on in the very near future. Um, and and for everybody listening uh, and watching the show, you can find him at Non League USA on Twitter. And uh, there you can find info and links to his documentary, his website, and, and see some of these stories. So, Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. That is Steve Bailey of Non-League America. He is uh, doing some great, great work, and we are really, really happy that he uh, that he joined the show. One of the, the, the things about um, American soccer is opportunity and, um, and, and the need for more to have opportunity. And Steve was, was touching on that. Charity Water is, is, is the same uh, approaches that what they do with the same mindset, that more people need an opportunity, and, and that opportunity is getting clean drinking water. So if you've not heard about Charity Water, go to charitywater.org. You can learn more about what they do, bringing clean drinking water to people around the world. And it is literally changing their lives. So um, kudos to Charity Water. Keep up the great work there, Steve, as well. We will be... Welcome back to the show. I'd like to thank Steve Bailey for coming on the show. Um, great work that they do. Great, great work. Telling stories that no one else is telling. And uh, they're compelling. They're fantastic. Check them out if you, if you haven't already at Non-League USA. The, the, one of the things that I want to touch on here, uh, kind of following up on some of the conversations that Steve and I were having, is that... The, the the untold stories of soccer in America are vast. They are large. There, there is so much going on in American soccer all over the place. And there, these stories are stories that 
you probably have never heard of, clubs that you've never heard of, teams that you've never heard of, players that you've never heard of, and, and they've they've been undiscovered, and, and you don't even know about them. And, um, you know, the, the work that, that guys like Steve and Non-League USA are doing, um, Non-League America, it, it's, it's, it's so um, vital to growing the game and improving the soccer culture around the country because the learning about some of these things, you never know what that's going to do for a young African-American kid or, or a young Latino kid. Uh, a young, you know, Vietnamese kid. You you just don't know what that's going to do. It may it, it may be uh, for a kid that's growing up in in rural, you know, backwoods America, and and they they come across a story on the internet, and the, and they see a kid, you know, falling in love with a game, and they're like, man, I I think I would like to try that game. You just never know, and and, and so it's so encouraging to see people like Steve who are obsessed with finding these stories and, and these stories that are not being covered at a high level in, the, in terms of the, the, you know, the, the coverage that you normally see in American soccer is, is of Major League Soccer, the USL, or, or big macro-level issues. And, and, and I completely understand why that dominates the, the, the American soccer media. But having non-league America do this kind of work and tell these stories uh, is, is so helpful to growing the game and improving the soccer culture in, in America. And, and ultimately I hope what it leads to is that more and more kids find that soccer is, is a great opportunity for them. It is a great sport for them. It is, it is a, a way out of their situation Maybe it's it is access to a school. Maybe it's access to to getting into a, a club that can provide them with an opportunity where that can become a career for them and they can become a, a professional soccer player one day. You just never know. I, I grew up in an area where th there there were kids who aspired to play at Alabama and Auburn and they they grew up with this desire they put in the work ethic and they they proved themselves on the American football field and they they made their way in into colleges and and eventually made their way to the to the pros and as more and more opportunities and more and more kids find that this can be an opportunity and as the system improves in order to provide these opportunities we can find more and more of these stories so i'm i am hopeful that that the the opportunity for so many kids grows as we go forward and i commend non-league america and steve and all the work that they're doing because it is so so critical to our growth, to the to the prosperity uh, of American soccer, the 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 next steps that we need to take in American soccer, and telling these stories and connecting these stories with people all across the country, um, it, it is simply amazing. So check them out, Non League America. You can find them on Twitter at Non League USA. And, um, and, and, you know, send Steve a note, if you, if you are connected to one of those, um, programs that he was referring to in, in terms of the college setup and the documentary or anything else, um, I'm sure we'd love to hear from you. And as always, you can find out more about what we do here on this show by going to danielworkman.com. And, uh, and you can also find us on Twitter at Daniel Workman, Instagram at Daniel Workman, Facebook.com forward slash WRKMN. Thanks for joining us on...